Hi and welcome to Cycling Talk with me, Georgia Mahoney. You can find my podcast on Spotify, Acast, Apple Podcasts, my Buzzsprout website, Podbean and all the usual podcast places. Check out my social media platforms like Instagram and Facebook at cycling.talk.podcast and Twitter at cycling underscore talk. People ask me why I started a podcast, and there isn't just one reason. I wanted to start something that I wanted to listen to. I wanted to learn about riders, and I wanted something to focus on when the world was in lockdown. I'm so grateful to every single guest who has given their time to talk with me and support me. How honest they have been, and how much I have been able to learn. Thank you to every one of you who is listening to and sharing my podcasts. Sometimes people ask me who inspired me to start my podcast. There has been no bigger inspiration for me than Mitch Docker. Mitch is an incredible rider with a unique style and an amazing podcast. I have learnt so much from Life in the Peloton and Talking Luft. And Mitch has given me so many great ideas on how to host my own podcast. Mitch said yes way back in early September and we finally caught up with him in January. I get excited about everyone, but as you can imagine, waiting four months to talk to one of your heroes, this was probably the most excited I've ever been. Thank you Mitch, not only for being on the podcast, but for more than living up to my expectations. Thank you for joining me today, Mitch. No worries. Thanks for having me on. So can you tell me one of your early memories of being on a bike? One of my first memories being on a bike was I lived in a court or a um, cul-de-sac, I guess is another word for it. It's just like a dead-end street. So it was fun for playing in the street. And we used to ride our, me and a couple of neighbours used to ride our BMXs around the street um because it was safe and mum and dad would let us sort of ride out in the street that's my first first memory but um you know my first racing memory was on the on the track actually which um I wasn't that young that was when I was about 16. Do you remember the first bike that you were really excited about? I think it was well my first bike I was very excited about was my BMX um And I used to ride that with my cousins. They lived on a bit of property and I used to take my BMX up there and my two cousins are younger than me, both boys, and we'd burn around on the dirt and things like that. Um, But my first racing bike that I was excited about was my dad's old Dodson, it was called. And um, he used to ride around on that. And then um, eventually when I started getting into cycling, he got it done up and re-sprayed and re-sticked and it became my bike. And um, mm. I remember having my first ride bike, road bike and that was, that was actually pretty special. It was pretty cool because it was super fast. Did you join a local club or a local team? I did in the beginning, yes. Um, in the very beginning, I started with Brunswick Cycling Club and um, that was the club that I'm still with today. And they were very good to, to support young kids in the beginning. We just went down to the track and just raced for free around the track. And it was, it was a really nice culture. And it's still a very nice culture now. So the Brunswick Cycling Club um, in Melbourne. 
So did you actually just sort of start out riding, not racing, but riding BMX? I did. I think just like any kid, um, you know, just get on your bike. And I wasn't really racing or riding heaps either. I would only ride sporadically. Um, it wasn't like I was glued to a bike when I was a kid. Um, I think I was more excited about competition, racing in running, racing in riding, whatever it was. And then it wasn't until later in life that I really discovered cycling. When I say later, you know, when I was about 15 or 16, I started to understand about real racing in, you know, track racing and road racing. How did you get into racing? And can you tell me more about your first race? I got into racing through the Olympics, actually. I was up watching the Olympics at the 2000 Olympics in Sydney. We were lucky enough to go and see the track cycling. And on that particular night, um, Australia won gold in the Madison, which in those days wasn't that common for Australia to win gold on the track. They weren't the force that they are now. And it was such a crazy night being in Australia, um, a racing I'd never seen before. And I remember just being completely blown away by it. And I thought, wow, I already knew about the Tour de France, but I wasn't that interested in that. I liked it, but I didn't think I wanted to race. But track cycling really attracted me. So like I said before, I came down to Melbourne and went out to the Brunswick track and started racing around the Brunswick track. And um, the first race, did you say? The first race that I did, um, that was at the Brunswick track. We went down there and they have novice racing, so you don't need a license. You just go down there and you, uh, in those days, you just, you know, you wore your runners and put, you know, put in toe straps and just strapped your feet in and just went for it on, on a whole group of bikes that everyone shared and, um, it was pretty exhilarating from the first moment I raced. It was just amazing to be able to race a bike in a race, if that makes sense. Not just race your mate around the block. It was a real race and um, it felt great. So did you do a lot on the track? Early on, yes. Um, in Australia, well, back in those days, I think it's still very similar now is that you know, in the summertime, you race the track and in the road, you race on the, win- on the in the winter, you race on the road. Um, and uh, in the beginning, it was just like that. On the, in the summer, I raced the track and that's just what you did as a junior. All your friends, all your other competitors, they raced the track. You did all the carnivals, the summer carnivals, travel around Victoria, even Australia. And then in the wintertime, you did the same thing, but on the road. Um, and uh, that's just sort of how how it worked up until um, I sort of finished in under 23 and became professional. What sort of training were you doing and who were you training with? Back in those days, um, in the very beginning, I was really not doing any specific training. Um, And I remember we were training back then, we just used to train on kilometres. That's all we had as a speedo. I'm not saying it's years and years ago, but, you know, there was no power meters and things like that. So you might go for a 30K ride or a 50K ride or you just join a bunch and just go where the bunch would go. So, um, you know, on a Sunday morning, I used to meet up with a bunch, the 7.30 bunch, and we would ride a big lap of King Lake. And that was the ride. That's all you did. You know, you just completed the ride and whatever whatever intensity you had from the... um 
from the ride you did. There was no specific efforts or anything like that. And it was really about finding and enjoying it. I met so many different people that weren't in my normal friendship group from school. They were all walks of life. You know, there was old, old guys there who had been racing for years. There were young kids like me. There were middle-aged men just getting out for a Sunday morning ride. And um, that's what I loved about cycling is that I could just talk to anyone and there was no stigma about it. Didn't matter what age you were, what job you had, everyone just had the same mutual interest and that was cycling. So obviously Australia is huge. How much traveling did you have to do to get to races and events? It was quite a lot. Um, And mainly mainly you raced in your state. Um, And I'm from Victoria. Even in Victoria, there was quite a lot of traveling. especially with the the track cycling, uh, velodrome racing, they had carnivals and you would normally go on a a weekend trip away and stay for two days, maybe race on the Saturday and Sunday and then come back. Um, And the road racing also, it's it's quite far out of Melbourne. I'm sure it's like that in the rest of the world where they have to get the permits for the road. So they're normally in some place where there's no one ever driving. but uh, I didn't really travel all over Australia. The only thing that I did as a junior is I travelled up to Sydney a few times because my dad is from Sydney and we went up there and raced as a junior in Sydney, which is a, quite an uncommon thing to do. And I remember the guys up in Sydney just were thinking, who's this guy from Victoria? You know, because in the, on the start line, they would announce the names and you, you knew everyone. You know, it wasn't if someone new came, you would know who they were. The, the start list were only 10, 15 riders long. And suddenly there was this guy from Victoria there. So that was quite a strange thing to do. Not many people were traveling interstate because like you said, it was, it was quite far to do that. How did you get on in your races in Sydney? Um, look, in the beginning, I'm not going to say I was crap, but I wasn't, I wasn't like, um, the Peter Sagan of the Peloton. I wasn't winning every race. Um, I don't really remember winning any early races um, apart from the very, very beginning. Um, in the very beginning when I was on the, the Brunswick Velodrome, I was quite good and, I, and they said, let's go to some real racing now. And then that's when I was like, whoa, these guys really know how to race. I was, you know, these guys have been racing since they were 10 years old and I started when I was... 15, 16. So they were much better than me. Mm. Uh, but I think that was probably the attraction for me is that I had to keep getting better. I had to keep trying to win a race and get better and better. And the, the progression happened so quickly through the next few years that it really kept me attracted to the sport. Did you actually specialize in anything on the track? I was a pursuiter, like individual pursuit, team's pursuit, um i madison I, I love the madison that was probably my favorite event and um that was something that really kept me in the program for a lot longer um teams pursuit and individual pursuit i probably wasn't strong enough to be in the australian team and so i tried to do the madison or the scratch race um or the point score just the racing you know that really attracted me and the teamwork with another rider that was quite exciting so when did you start competing on the road? 
I did start competing back in those days. Um, so that would have been, I'm trying to think what year that would have been. Um, it would have been in about 2001, 2002, I really started. Um, but when, when I first really started racing would have been in 2003. And um, when things really started to get serious, was, wasn't until I was in under 19, which would have been uh around about 2004 yeah and um that's when you know as a junior the junior worlds come into the picture and that's probably you know as a junior you think that's the biggest thing in the world so of course i wanted to go to the junior worlds on the road um i wasn't able to make that team so then i went for the junior worlds on the track and i was able to make that team and um you quickly find out after even the next year that that doesn't really mean that much, but in the, in the whole scheme of things, when you're growing up, it's, it's a really great goal to focus on. And that was what I was doing back in those days. When did you realize that you had a talent for bike racing? Um, I don't know when I realized it, maybe, Maybe when I got to represent Australia, um, the year that, like I spoke about, when I didn't go to the road worlds, um, they had this thing called the Australian B team. And that was a trip to New Zealand. And we went across to New Zealand, the five guys that were, that missed out, say they picked a B team. And it was a pretty cool moment. You know, I got to pull on the Aussie colors and it was it was a very, very small trip and it was just more about the acknowledgement of, of representing your country. And I really thought, wow, I'm, I'm representing my country. This is something significant that yeah. none of my friends at school have ever done. And even though I was an Australian B team, I still got all the paperwork with all the Australian um, emblems on it and things like that. And I had to sign and it felt really special. And I think from there, that got me really, I guess I started to understand that, wow, I can, I'm pretty good at this. Maybe I can keep pushing. And I kept pushing myself. And ultimately the next year I was able to represent at the Junior Worlds. Was that the first time that you raced outside of Australia then? The New Zealand trip would have been, yeah. And then the following year was uh, across to America. So that, was, that would have been my first two trips. Can you tell me about your trip at the Junior Worlds? It was a really cool trip. Um, it was a lot of sacrifice. It was in my last year of high school, so I had to miss um, quite a lot of time at high school, which made it very difficult because I wanted to finish high school. And um, it, was a, it was a lot of hard training. Um, we all went away to Sydney, the team. And we trained there for, I think, three weeks all together on the track. And it felt very intense, but created these really good bonds. I think you're in this age where I would have been 17, where you're just in a good age to make good connections, good friends. And we went away to America, which was a really exciting trip and trying to save up the money to go and get sponsors. It was a really big deal and a really big effort and very high pressure and a lot of um, a lot of sacrifice to go across but on the same side a lot of enjoyment and big really big experience um, you know and for me there was it wasn't a 
it wasn't all positive in the end. Um, you know, we won the gold medal, but um, I didn't ride the, the team's pursuit final. So in those days, only the four riders got the medal. And so I, I didn't get the gold medal there. I took so much out of that trip that it made me so hungry to be a, a better cyclist. It must have been hard to watch the rest of the team when, when you weren't part of it. It was hard. Yeah, it was, um, like I said, you were a team and you did all that training together and you knew someone had to miss out, but you always thought it wasn't going to be you. Um, and then ultimately when it was you, it was, it was really hard to take because it was such a team atmosphere and you really wanted to be part of that and you knew the boys that were feeling it um and even though you were part of that victory too you wanted to be there you wanted to be the one pushing the pedals on that final final uh ride so when you were on that trip did you have to spend a lot of time away from home when training as well we did beforehand, yeah. We um, like we went to Sydney for three weeks before and we went directly from there to America, I think, for two more weeks. Yeah. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure it was about five or six-week trip. And like I said, it was in the middle of school. So <clears throat> I, took, I took my work with me thinking I would do homework, but, of course, that was very difficult. Um, mm. I probably had time, but I just didn't really want to. <laughs> you know, I, I was away with the boys and to go sit in the hotel room when you're sharing a hotel room with someone and sit down and do biology, I don't think that was going to happen. <laughs> um, you know, and it was, it was tough because you were, it was hard training and the whole time was all about selection. So you felt this pressure all the time and, even though it was fun with the boys, there was this underlying competition. You wanted to get in the team and you didn't want to be the guy left out. So it was a very um, tough experience, but I think a very positive experience in terms of where I am as a human and also as an athlete. I think you need to go through that experience for the, for the better or the worse. If I'd ridden the gold medal final, you know, maybe I wouldn't be here today. So I'm sort of happy that everything has happened the way it has, that, I had those hard moments and I was able to overcome them and keep pushing yeah. forward. Did you manage to finish that schoolwork then? I did, yeah. Not with great, great marks, but I was able to come back, finish my year 12, it's called, and um, go on from there to university. Can you tell me about when you joined the Australian Junior Road team in 2003? Yeah, that was that was really good actually because like I said it was it was a bit of a repercharge trip. You know, you didn't make the you didn't make the A team, but the B team went to New Zealand and but I really I really bought into it. Um and one of my best mates came on that trip, Casey, um Casey Munro, him and I were there and actually my coach today was the um the manager of that trip kevin poulton and so it's funny how the world came around again and you know kevin says to me these days he goes i always see back in that trip in new zealand i could tell that you were going to be up there in Rubai one day you know i don't know how he could see that but um it was it was a really special trip because it was that first time away and that first bit of freedom and responsibility um we could do what we wanted and 
Kev was pretty easy going, actually. He was, you know, made sure he took care of us, but he let us make our own decisions. And it felt good when we're over there racing as a team, an Australian team, and we got thrown into these races against the New Zealanders and it wasn't always junior racing either. Um, and a pretty steep learning curve, but a pretty... Um, a pretty nice one. It was easy. You know, New Zealand's very similar to Australia, so it wasn't too big a step. Can you tell me about your first pro contract and how it happened? Yeah, that was um, with Skill Shimano in 2009. Um, and I'd been racing a little bit in Europe that year and had got the attention of Skill Shimano along the way. Um, and we were talking a little bit during the year but I wasn't sure what that really meant in those days. Um, but it wasn't until later in the year that I rode Tour de Lavinia and uh, I got a, a small result there. I finished second in the stage. And again, Skill Shimano said, yeah, we're, you know, we're in contact. We're, we're still thinking of you. And um, luckily enough for me later that year, I, I made the under 23 Australian team to go to the Worlds. And I think that was enough for Skill Shimano. They said, yeah. well, if he's good enough for Australia, he's good enough for us, let's give him a chance. And um, I signed my first pro contract um, after the 2009 Worlds down in uh, Italy in Varese. Can you tell me a bit about your time with that team? Skill, yeah, it was a good team. Very good team. Um, it was Again, a, a steep learning curve because I, I moved to Holland um, and uh, I was pretty homesick there, I have to admit. It was, I didn't love it. I certainly didn't love my first year as a professional. Uh, I didn't like where I was living and I felt very alone there and just doing a lot of the simple things, um, you know, paying phone bills and running out of money and doing your own shopping and things like that. It would, at some points, it just got overwhelming. My racing was, I was struggling in the racing and yeah, like I said, I had no money and no friends and just, I was thinking, what am I doing here? But, you know, as, as the, the years went on, things got easier. I started racing a bit better and I started finding my groove and it was, a time again, I would never turn back because it made me learn the hard way and I was able to get through it. And I think it set me up for who I am today, you know, doing those things, those little things that seem frivolous. They're very important to be able to take care of things in another country and in another language. And those days in skills taught me that in a very harsh way. And no one was there. When I say no one was there, they were there to help, but I had to sort all of that stuff out on my own and um, I was 22 and it was just like time to grow up. And um, yeah, I, I look back on those days quite fondly. In the team, it was great too because the riders, I have such good bond with all those riders and I still am very good friends with all those guys today. And one of the, team, one of the teams that I've created some of the most best friends from were the first few years racing in Europe. Yeah, that must have been really hard. Can you tell me what the language barrier was like? I was pretty lucky, actually. I'm now thinking about it. Holland, everyone speaks very good English. And there came a point where I was like, you know what? I'm going to try and learn Dutch. And I would start to speak a little bit of Dutch at the supermarket. And the Dutchies would 
pick up that I couldn't speak Dutch. So they would just think they were helping me by talking English. But it was it was helping me, sure, in, in the in the short term, but in the long term, I never learned any Dutch. Um, and my teammates always let me know that. Um, so that was quite hard. I think when I say the language barrier, it was, it's a little bit more of a cultural barrier. Um, mm. You can speak and you can converse, but they just, you're different, your culture, things you do are different and things you view as important, they don't view as as important and just little cultural things that you really did miss it. Um, you miss the loop or they didn't understand what you were talking about or maybe hurt their feelings or things like that. And that became hard after a while. So obviously the weather in Holland would have been very different from the weather in Australia. Was it a bit of a shock for you? The weather was a shock. Yeah. The weather, I always remember I, I left Australia the first year they wouldn't let me do the national championships. They said, no, you need to be in Holland on the 2nd of January or the 3rd of January. And so I left, I packed up. And I think the day that I left was, you know, 40 degrees in Australia, 30, mm -hmm. high 30s, 40 degrees. And I landed in Holland, it was minus 20. And I was <laughs> like, whoa, 60 degrees difference. And um, I want to say one or two days later, we had a team training camp up in where I was living in Holland. And I remember asking the other boys, I'm like, what do you wear? I, don't, I didn't even know what to wear. Like I wore... <laughs> two sets of everything, two sets of leg warmers, you know, two big jackets and I was still cold. And I'd never seen that thing that you do when you have cold hands and you have to shake your hands to get the blood down into your hands. You know, you shake your hands on the bike. I'm like my hands, my hands are so cold and they're like, you got to shake it down. And so, you know, I learned straight there that this is cold. Um, <laughs> I got to ice skate on a frozen lake and um, it was it was pretty cool, but I remember thinking, I remember the, the the climbers, we did some sprint efforts and all the climbers were beating me in the sprints and um, one of the directors said to me, you know, I thought you were supposed to be a sprinter. I was like, well, I can't sprint in minus 20 degrees. I just, I couldn't move. It was such a shock to the system. So then you moved to Green Edge. Can you tell me about that? That was very cool. Um, yeah, Green Edge, the start of Green Edge was, yeah, it was, it was a dream come true. I didn't know what, I never had that as a dream. But when I think about it now, all the riders in that team were like all the best riders in Australia sort of ever, um, you know, excluding a few early guys. Um you know, all the guys you used to watch on television, Stuart O'Grady, Robbie McEwen, these guys were in my team and these guys were my teammates. And then all the young guys as well that are now my best mates. So it really was a cool experience. Um, and it really went off with a bang in the beginning. We had some great training camps and we had some great results early on. And I think in my point in my career where... After three years in a Dutch team, I was really craving that camaraderie of some Australians. And it really has prolonged my career. You know, I did six years in an Australian team. And actually, by the end of the sixth year, I was ready to move on. But in those six years, it was it was such a fun environment. We had a really great time. And we it was nice to work with your own countrymen. And it's a different bond than 
with the Europeans. It's not necessarily bad with the Europeans, but it's just different. Um, but there was a very, it was a great team um, and still is a great team. So yeah, it was a, a very, very fun experience. And obviously that was one of the best teams in the world. How was it received in Australia? Yeah, it was great. It was great. Yeah. It was especially in Melbourne because um, the owner of Green Edge, Jerry Ryan, he's from Melbourne, um, where I'm also from. And we did a lot of our stuff in Melbourne, which was cool for me. We did a lot of training camps there and, you know, whether it was media stuff or sponsors of things, we did them just outside of Melbourne at Jerry's Vineyard up in Mitchelton, which is not far from Melbourne. So it felt very like home. Whenever I came home in Christmas time, it was the home team. And it was a very nice feel. We'd do everything at the AIS and um, it felt very close to home. It was very comforting. So I've got down here written as a note, um, talk to Mitch about Call Me Navy. Um, can you tell the listeners about that, the ones that don't know about it? Well, <clears throat> I'm not sure if everyone remembers, but they're, well, it still exists now, but Backstage Pass um, was created by Dan Jones, was the cameraman on um, Green Edge. And Dan was more than a cameraman. That's sort of very much underplaying his role. He was just... A great guy. He created great morale on the team and was always thinking of great ideas. And one of his ideas was the backstage pass to allow everyone outside of cycling get to know the characters of the cyclists, you know, because very much a pro cyclist is very shut off and you don't get to know who they are. And so backstage pass was about showing that. And an extension of that was to do this funny music video or something extra to just show that we're human a bit bit fun and call me maybe was a video clip um the song call me maybe i can't remember who the singer is um but the i think it's the um there's a nfl team in america that did the exact same clip that we did. Well, we did the exact same clip they did. And that's exactly what we did. We watched it and we thought it was funny on the bus one day. And then Dan said, why don't we just do the exact same clip ourselves?" And everyone was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is on the Vuelta, my first Vuelta España, my first Grand Tour. And so slowly, but we just picked off every scene and said, all right, who's doing this scene? And what he would do was he would put the original video up and then when we filmed one scene, he would sink it into the original video with the, I think it's Miami Dolphins actually, the Miami Dolphins. And then every, when our new scene came in, instead of the Miami Dolphins scene, it would be us. And so slowly but surely we filled up all the scenes and we made up our own video. And um, it started off as a bit of a joke, but then everyone really started to get into it and um, they kept taking it further and further and, so much so that Simon Clark was doing it on the podium and um, we got the old guys into it, Peter Weening and um, Julian Dean. And it was a fun way to get through a grand tour in terms of when that, when the hard moments were on, you just were trying to think of a funny thing to do for the Call Me Maybe video. <laughs> so whilst you were with Green Edge, you won the team time trial in the Giro in Belfast. How was that? 
That was great. That was, um, I was only, I was in the Giro and then I got dropped from the Giro and then I got brought back in. Sam Bula got injured. So I felt a bit of pressure being in there and it was a really red hot team for the Giro, for the team's time trial. Um, really specialised for it. Um, and I'm not going to say I'm the worst team's time trialer, but with those guys, it's bloody hard. Those The team we had there. Um, and so we took off and that was the main aim of the whole race was to take the jersey on day one and hang on. And we got the jersey and it was an amazing experience to be a part of that team. Like it goes back to, like I said, this camaraderie with all the riders, this real team atmosphere, everyone doing it for each other. And it was shown on the podium. When we won that day, we had such a great time. And for a minute or two while we're spraying the champagne, you forgot where you were. Didn't feel like you're at a bike race. It just felt like you're at a party with your best mates. Um, and then of course the Giro started. So <laughs> that was a, a rude awakening once the race began the next day and we were trying to defend that Jersey, but it was a great, it was a great start to the race. And um, it was a great, my, my favorite grand tour for sure. Even though everything crumbled away, we had a lot of fun there and it was a real, you know, not to use this, this saying too lightly, it was a real band of brothers. Everyone was just happy to be around each other's company. My dad has a time trial bike and um, he finds it scary riding on his own. And then it must have been crazy for you riding in a bunch. Do you ever get scared being in that group riding on the time trial bikes? Scared of crashing? Um... Sometimes you do, like you, when you're sitting in a line, you don't because the whole time you're just trying to keep up, if that makes sense. You, the wheel in front of you is just pulling away and you're trying to pull to stay with it. So it's never really dangerous when you're in one line. But once you start getting technical, once it starts getting technical, it can get really, really dangerous because some guys can go through corners faster than others. And um, that's when it can get really dangerous. I think the thing I'm most scared about is not getting dropped. It is really, it is really so hard. Um, once you do your turn, you push yourself to the limit on the front, even though it doesn't look like that. And as you're floating back on the side, the hardest part is trying to get back onto the back. Mm. And um, then it all goes over again. So it is, it's a really, really hard discipline. And it's beautiful to watch. I think it gets really underrated how hard that discipline really is. So you mentioned the Vuelta and you finished six Vueltas altogether. Do you have any favourite memories or favourite moments from your Vuelta races? Yeah, like there's a couple. Like that first Vuelta was really special because it's your first one. Um, and I remember specifically sitting behind Julian in the in the bus. Yeah, everyone has their seat in the bus. Um, and that first one, I sat behind him, and I learned a lot from watching him. You know, from just observing. That was a big thing in that Vuelta. He was his last Grand Tour and was my first, and I was able just to see how a guy went about it. Um, mm. And I also remember Travis Meyer was there, Cameron Meyer's brother, and him and I 
really suffered through that thing together and, um, you know, getting in the bus after those hard days and you just almost embrace and go, mate, well done. We made it. We made another day. And then fast forward, you know, a few years later, um, Esteban Chavez, he took the jersey there. I think that was 2015, potentially, or 14, maybe. And um, he took the leader's jersey there. And that was a really huge comeback for him after his big injury. And we had Matt Heyman there. And Matt Heyman installed that belief in him. And, yeah, he, he took the jersey and he hung on to it. And that was an incredible experience. And he was so you know, grateful for all the work he did for him. And he really made you lift to a new level working for him. And it was a, he's a beautiful guy. So it was, it was great to see that success and his comeback. And we've seen where he's gone from there. And then almost fast forward to this year, it was like an amazing tour at the end of a really crap year. And I don't think anyone expected that out of our team, even our team. Um, we lost Danny Martinez in the early stages and then Hugh Carthy just stepped up. Um, his his stage win on the Angry Lou, Woodsy's stage win, and then Magnus's stage win. And then obviously Hugh finishing third overall. It's just like, whoa, what can't this team do? And it was in November and everyone was over it, but the team was still fighting. So the Vuelta, I always end up in the Vuelta somehow and it's uh, it's been a race that... I sort of love to hate or, you know, it's it's a tough one, but I'm always there. So you now ride for EF Education. How did you join the team? Well, um, I joined the team in 2018. Mm-hmm. And in 2017, uh, Greenwich was going in a, well, Mitch, or, I can't remember what it's called then, Mitchelton, Greenwich, whatever it was called. Um was going in a bit of a different direction. And it, I sort of got it to the point, like I said back there, that I was becoming a little bit stale there. I was taking things a little bit for granted and I wasn't really sure what I wanted. I wasn't really enjoying myself. I was just riding. And um, I moved teams to EF and I wasn't really sure what I wanted at EF. I didn't really know much about the team. The team didn't have a sponsor in the middle of the year. And all of a sudden, EF came on right at the last minute and I signed with the team right at the last minute as well. Um, and I was thinking it was had a really good classics team and I thought, well, the rest will be work itself out. But actually, the rest was the best part. It's a great team because it's it sort of suits my personality. There's quite a lot of different characters here and the team really lets you express who you are. Um and that's been probably the biggest thing that's reignited my career in the last three, four years is that I've been able to be myself and explore who I want to be as a, as a leader on the road or, you know, my personality in the, in the group and try and, you know, lift the spirit of the team or whatever it is. And then, of course, the riding side of things. Um, it's a great team, as, as I just mentioned, with the Vuelta. Everyone really wants to help each other out and really work well together. So I've really, really enjoyed my time the last few years here. So EF have so many riders from lots of different countries. Do you think the different cultures bring a lot to the team? I do, yeah. I really do because 
even though we all have different cultures, as long as there's not too many of the one culture, it all just has to share around. I think once you have a team with too many of the one culture, unless you're from that culture, it just gets too much. Like, for instance, in Green Edge, it was great for me because it was an Australian culture. But if you were an Australian, I don't know, maybe you wouldn't like it. Um, maybe this, it's the same if I went and raced for a Belgian team. It's very Belgian or French or whatever. Um, whereas this team, everyone sort of just has a general laugh at each other and you sort of find this happy medium. Um, I don't know really a better way to put it, but I think that's how it is. There's, there's not too many of the one culture, so it all sort of mixes and matches. So you're known for you, your unique style. You didn't go to the Giro this year but they did have a different kit, which was the Palace kit. Did you like that kit? I did, yeah. I was I was pretty disappointed, I have to admit. I was on the Giro list and I got pulled off the very last minute and I was very dirty when the, then the kit came out and I saw how good it looked. I tell you, it was, it was very hard to take. Why did they change the kit from the normal kit? Um, I, as far as I understand, the Giro requested that they have a different jersey because, um, as you might know, that sometimes when the when the jersey is too close to the leader's jersey, the race can request that the team changes their jersey. Um, years ago, Team Monse would change theirs in the Tour de France. So as far as I understand, that's what was happening. And then um, the team took the opportunity to, to really make a big um, big deal out of it. And I think it was quite a, quite a good move. Yeah, I think it got a lot of people talking about it. Yeah, for sure. Um, I really like the EF kit, the normal kit. I think, I think I like how unique it is. You can easily tell that it's there in the peloton. Yeah, this year's or just in this year and last year, you mean, since Rafa's yeah. been on board? Yeah. Um, so listening to your podcast, it's clear that you love Paris-Roubaix. Can you tell me and your listeners why you love it so much? Um, I think because it's just so different. It's just so different to any other race. Um, people think that it's like a Flandern race, but it's not. It's There's so much passion in this race and... It's so difficult, but it suits me in a way. So it's not like so difficult like uh, Liège that, yeah, I'm like, wow, it's just too difficult. (laughs) It's a difficult race that I can conquer, but it can also be so hard that it can defeat you, which has happened to me before too. Um, And there's something about the battle of the race that I really love that opposed to different races, this is really the only race and a little bit with Flanders, but not the same is that every single rider wants to get to the finish in no matter whatever position they are, they're still racing for the finish right up until a hundredth position, even if they're out of time. And a lot of other races, even I'd almost say all other races, you are just riding to the finish or trying to find a way to get out of the race. If you're dropped, Roubaix is just like, race 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 as hard as you can and if you get dropped you're still racing behind just to get in just to make sure you can make it see if you can make it because a lot of guys can't if you 
have a mechanical or you're physically just too tired or the, the cobblestones are too rough. That's that can happen. So it's just such a special race and it's just such a challenging race. And there's just such a really cool aura about it um, that the day before the night before you can feel it. You can just feel like this through bay tomorrow. Yeah. It's, it's a special one. So I know obviously you had a bad crash there in 2016 and my dad's seen the video of it. He won't let me watch it because he says that it's so bad. Um, can you tell me about it? <sighs> that crash was one of those things in my career where there was sort of a positive out of it, weirdly. Um, I think in that point in my career, I'd sort of been riding along and, yeah, still going as hard as I can, but I didn't really know why I was racing anymore, why I was really doing it. I was just going from year to year, race to race, and and that crash really stopped everything. Um <laughs> metaphorically and, and literally. Um, and it just, it put me in the hospital and allowed me just to really go, what are you doing, mate? You, do you really love this? Because if you don't, do you want to put yourself through this? Do you want to put your family through this again? And it just allowed me that time to think and really think about what I was doing and why I was doing it. And if I wanted to continue doing it. And I always remember from that crash, one of the first things I realized why I want to ride again or if I want to ride again was, you know, I felt like I wanted to do Roubaix again. And from that moment, I sort of knew, well, if I want to do Roubaix again, then I still want to be a rider. And, um, yeah, it was, it was one of those, I'm not going to say life, it was, yeah, it was a life-changing experience, I guess. Um, it was a... Yeah, it was. It was, it, was a, it was a big one. So, obviously, there are always the iconic shower pictures from Roubaix. Do mm. you remember who you've showered in? Whose things I've changed in? Um, yeah, well, Matt Heyman, I, I went with Heyman um, a couple of years ago and he, he got changed in his. I thought that was quite cool. Um, and I've got changed in museos once and I'll try and get changed in, um, in uh, Taffy's, Andrea Taffy. Um, but sometimes it's quite hard to find the names because there's quite a lot, obviously there's quite a lot of names in there. Um, it's not like you just walk around and, you know, for 10 minutes trying to look for a name because you, you're pretty tired and you sort of quickly have a look um, and hopefully see someone that you can and um, get changed in and go in there. But not many guys do the shower anymore. It's like, I think maybe 10 or 15 guys do the shower because as it used to be, the buses used to park right where the showers were. But in the last sort of five, six years, the buses parked probably 500 metres away. And so you have to ride to the bus, get your staff out of the bus, then walk back through the crowd, get back to the showers, have a shower there, then walk back to the bus. It doesn't sound like much of an effort now, but at the end of that race with the crowds and everyone's trying to get to the airport and you sort of have to really make a big point to go, no, I want to shower in the Roubaix showers. How do you feel about all the photographers that are there? 
<laughs> yeah, that's that's quite weird, I guess. Um, oh, you just you just get on with it. Um, you know, you just got to have a shower, and I think they're also respectful. You know, they're not. They're just trying to get that moment of you know you in the water and whatever. So, um, just get on with it, have a shower, and you sort of. It's weird to think that, but you don't really notice them there. You know, you do when you first get in, and you're like, "Oh, there's a lot of photographers here." But then you start getting changed, and next thing you know, you're just talking to a guy next to you about the race, and then you sort of forgotten about them, and you know they're doing their thing, and you're just sort of doing your thing. Um, it is quite a weird scenario, but yeah. We previously mentioned your podcast. What made you want to start that? I wanted to start that because I was noticing every time I went back to Australia that or when I spoke to someone who wasn't really closely in the cycling world, they didn't really understand what I did as a job. And I thought... How can they not still understand? Like it's it's obvious, you know. I've been doing this for years, but they still didn't quite get it. And I thought, well, I've been starting to listen to podcasts. I thought, well, that's not a bad idea. Maybe I could just start explaining what my job is or what life is like as a pro um, in a podcast form. You know, just speak to other pros and we just talk about what we really do, how we live, and nothing more crazy than that. Um, and that's really where it developed. I started. I did the first one with Luke Durbridge. He was at my house in the summer and we just did a practice one and that was it. We, it sounded pretty funny, chucked it up and a few people liked it. And that was, that was that. I always offer people questions before so that they know what sort of thing I'm going to ask. Do you think at first people sometimes felt a bit nervous about what you might ask them? And if you sort of had a motive, um, I think it comes with, I don't, I, I guess maybe they are. Um, but what I try and do is I just try and be honest myself, um, when I'm speaking with them. So if I feel that someone's not comfortable, I might give them an example of what I'm trying to ask them. And I'll give them an example of my story. Um, that is an honest story. And they, they'll understand, wow, this is an honest, open platform. Um, and so I think it's just a two-way street. You can't be like, tell me all your life story and then just be like, oh, well, that's it. You know, I'm not going to be really share anything of myself either. It's a, it's a give and take. Um, it's a conversation. So that's how I feel in the podcast. And I wouldn't be want to be on the other end where, you know, you're being honest with this person and they're just completely not being honest with you. So it's a, it's a connection. And that's how I try and set up the podcast. Um, and of course, you know, I always offer the, the option that, you know, it's an open conversation. If there's anything in the recorded, we can always edit it out. And there's nothing ever I've had to edit out. You know, it's, it's never trying to... That's also a point with my podcast. I'm never really looking for gossip or big nuggets of information it's just trying to explain what we do in a simple way um maybe with a laugh or two yeah I agree with that I'd never want to make one of my guests feel uncomfortable with the things I'm asking them and at the end of the day I do it because I want to learn more about them and I want to find out 
what it's like as the life of a pro rider. Yeah, nice. Yeah, exactly. Your podcasts were sort of an inspiration for my podcast, actually. Did you get inspiration for your podcast from any other podcast that you'd listened to? I did, but they were they they were nothing to do with what I do. Um, it was a guy called Tim Ferriss. Um, he's a podcaster. Well, he's many things from America. Um, just really interesting guy, and I really loved the questions he asked and the way he asked them. And I still listen to his podcast to, you know, listen to the way he interviews and listen to the way he listens and thinks of the next question and the way he sort of directs the conversation. He's, he's really great. Um, also another podcast is a guy called Jocko Willink. Um, and he's an ex Navy SEAL. Um, again, completely, completely different than my podcast, but his podcast is all about leadership and, um, you know, ownership, owning, you know, extreme ownership, he calls it. And I sort of like that idea that you own your actions and, and what you're talking about and you, mm. he, that's, that's what his podcast is about. Again, I just, it's completely different to mine, but I like the way that he talks in it, um, and listens, you know, it's, it's, that's really important too. Um, I listen back on my original podcast and I'm thinking, God, would I just shut up? You know, cause I'm just cutting in, telling my story here, my story there. And the guest is just listening on the other side where it should be the other way around. Um, so it does take a while to sort of find your feet. Um, and of mm. course I'm very much learning many things and still get nervous before certain podcasts as well and under prepare and catch myself, you know, in a, in a spot where I don't really know what to say. So it's a continual learning experience. And that's also a, a um, an inspiration or a motivation for me to keep doing the podcast because it keeps pushing me. It's I'm learning from it. I'm talking to people. I'm asking them questions that I want to know. And also it's making me, it's pushing my boundary to do research, to learn how to you know, be a better interviewer. Which guest do you think you've been most nervous to interview? The first one I was really nervous to interview was David Miller. Um, I didn't, up until then, I'd really only did, done people that I knew personally. Mm. And I'd met Dave a few times in Girona, but I didn't really know him personally. I knew him well enough to ask him to come on the pod, but I wanted to ask him about his doping background. And he talked about in his book, he was happy to openly talk about it. But I remember when the question came up to finally go there, I sort of was dancing around it for about 20 seconds, you know, like, rather than asking the question directly um, because I was nervous about asking it, you know, but he was completely fine. Um, and I think more recently I was pretty nervous talking to my team boss, um, Jonathan Vorders. I think just the dynamic of him being my boss and me asking him what he does. And it was just, a, it was quite a weird dynamic. It was completely fine in the end, but you know, again, I listened to the first 10 minutes of that podcast and I'm thinking, I could, I can hear myself. I was quite nervous and, and talking quite a lot. And then as it got going, things relaxed and it was, it was much better. So my favorite episode was your episode with 
Hugh Carthy. Um, that wasn't actually that long ago. I thought that was a really good episode. Yeah, Hugh, he was he was in good form that day. Um, I, I did Hugh on the podcast a few years ago uh, in the Giro, and when you know him personally, he's he's great. He's got a great sense of humour. But suddenly behind the mic, it didn't come across in that one a few years ago, and it was a mixed it was a mixed um, reaction from people. And I was like, oh, that was funny. I thought he was funnier than that. But when I did him on this podcast, he really came out of his shell. He was very relaxed and it was, we had a lot of fun, <laughs> a lot of fun on there. Um, and it was at a really, really great time too. It was just in a really great spot, riding really well and just very confident in himself. So it was, it was a great podcast. When did you come up with the idea to start your podcast, Talking Luft? That came up, that was my, um, my little, my producer, Lara, who helps me with the podcast. She came up with the idea, actually, because um, we're on the cycling podcast now. And the cycling podcast do a great job. They put out so many great episodes and my episodes in there every, every two weeks. And a few of my listeners from Life in the Peloton were struggling to find my episode. I think they're very used to it now, but in the beginning, they couldn't find the episode. I said, I was trying to direct them across and I thought, well, if they keep coming to my feed, I, I should put something up on my feed just in case, you know, and we came up with this idea just to do a little extra. If I'm sitting down with a guest anyway, why not just do another 15 minutes with them? Um, and we just started coming up with these these questions, um, you know, all about caps. And that's probably where that's my side of it, you know, the style side. That's what I'm interested in. And she said you should have some questions that can relate to the the listener as well. And that's about the writing and their loops. And um, that's where that came from. It was very silly, and um, I was actually quite surprised that people enjoyed it as much as I did in record did recording it. I think Talking Luft inspired some of the questions that I usually ask on my podcast. Nice. Great. Very happy to hear that. There's new questions this year. I'm recording Talking Luft tonight with Hino. Um, so we've got a few new questions this year. It's, should, we'll see how it goes. Is there anybody that you would really like to interview? I've said Tom Boonen. I've said him a few times. Um, I'm going to try. I'm going to try and do him this year. I'm probably pretty nervous to talk to him. That's probably why. Um, maybe Lance. Maybe Lance Armstrong this year. Um, yeah, they're probably two. I wouldn't mind doing. And there's look. There's a whole bunch of. I wouldn't mind doing Walt Van Art um, in the peloton. Yeah, it's just it comes to you. You know, you're just in this moment. And you think, wow, that'd be really good to get. So. At the moment, they're, they're three that I wouldn't mind getting this year or talking to this year. I think it's really cool because you're because you ride in the peloton, then you're automatically sort of friends with the riders that I didn't think I could ever dream of asking on the podcast because they're just too big to be on the show. <laughs> it's the same for me, though. Like, you know, yeah, that is true. But you got to, you know, it's... I think I'm learning from people like you that you just ask and just ask, you know, and see what happens. There's no hurt in asking. 
Do you think you'd be a little bit nervous talking to Lance Armstrong? Yeah, I think so. I think so, yeah. Like, I guess I get nervous because you sort of want to get it right. Um, you don't want to waste it, the opportunity. You know, and you get off the phone call and you think, ah, oh, I wasn't prepared enough and, you know, it didn't go as well as I'd hoped. You know, I don't think I'd be nervous just talking to him. Mm. I think I'd just be more nervous that I don't get the most out of the opportunity um, and have the right questions to ask and, you know, maybe it doesn't go where I thought the conversation would go. And, you know, it's easy to, I find it very easy to ad lib when I'm talking just with a friend or someone that I know because I know something about them or, there's a personal story or moment I can always go to. But if it's someone I don't know like that, I've got to be sort of well-researched. Um, yeah, and just sort of ready to roll with the conversation where it might go. Yeah, I think it's, it's really important because obviously you only get to interview somebody once and so you want to get the most out of the interview that you give and, and sometimes you... I listen back to my episodes and I think, oh, I could have asked them about this. I could have asked them about this. But it's so much fun when you're doing the episodes that you sort of forget about some of the things, but you get even more out of it than you thought you would. Exactly. Yeah, you don't. And also that's the thing too, is that sometimes I am too researched and the podcast is just too long. Um, <laughs> and it loses its sort of authenticity. You know, it's like... By the end, the guest is just like, this is too much. Um, and it's reading the moment too, where just to sort of call it or even just pick up that, you know, these little um, hooks and you're like, oh, great. That's a great little hook. Let's just go down that road for a while and see where that goes. So how was 2020 for you? It was okay. Yeah, it was, It was. you know, it was different. Um but again, there were a lot of positives to pull out of it. Um, you know, I got a, a lot of time at home with the family. I've got two kids now. So I really got really good time to spend with them as they were growing up. My daughter turned one and my son, you know, he was three. So they're at that age where you can do quite a lot with them and they need a lot of attention as well. Um, and we were just inventing games in the lockdown and doing things like that. When the racing started was very intense um, and exciting, I guess. It was a new experience again and pushed me to my limits. The Vuelta pushed me to the limits I've never been to before, physically and mentally. So it was a big year. Um, mentally too, I feel it. Like I feel like I'm not quite ready to get into this year yet. And I think, why? Why is that? I've had some time off, but I just think there was a lot happening last year that we underestimated um, opposed to normal years. You know, you think, oh, yeah, I'm just around home relaxing, you know, like, you know, but you weren't. You were in lockdown and you were wondering what was happening. When can we get out? And all this sort of, yeah. I guess what you guys are feeling again, Um this unknown, this uncertainty. So that, that plays on you a bit. So it's by, my, by, by no means over this year, but it was a new experience that I'm sure we're going to be talking about for years to come. What sort of training do you do at the moment and what sort of training do you do to get ready for the road season? I'm doing a lot of um, hours at the moment, you know, not so crazy high intensity, um, 
a few efforts of long tempo. So just below high intensity, but just above riding around. Um, I'm on training camp at the moment. So we're doing quite a lot of unstructured efforts where we're sort of racing each other a little bit. But to get ready for the races in a few weeks, you'll start doing some more high intensity race specific efforts. So, you know, you're going out and doing five minute efforts or three minute efforts up climbs and things like that. Maybe even big rides with a group where you're racing each other and sprinting for signs and things like that. And then next thing you know, you'll be racing and the season's off and away. Do you prefer to do training or to do racing? I prefer training now, I think. Um, but because the racing's there, you know, it's weird. The racing, the racing um, justifies the training. You know, you train hard because there's a race coming. Mm. Um, yeah, I guess probably training more now. <laughs> what do you like to do to relax and recover? I like to relax by drinking a beer or two, um, sitting around having a few beers, talking to recover. So that's why I separated those two. Um, sleep. <laughs> <laughs> sleep i don't get as i don't really get much big sleep long sleeps anymore um so being away on training camp is is really nice you know i'm getting eight eight or more hours sleep which is really uncommon these days at home so just general sleep to recover what are your hopes for 2021 um i want to have a fun time you know Lots of laughs and lots of smiles, you know, like not get too down on myself or, you know, let people sort of get you down about what the situation is. Just try and really enjoy what I'm doing right now. And that is yeah. I'm riding my bike for, my, for a living. I'm living in Europe. I've got a beautiful little family. And just keep remembering that um, and deal with the situation that is there at the moment. But just remember it's not too bad. Where do you see yourself in five years' time? Back in Australia, back in this town where I want to live called Lansfield, running my own little store, <laughs> my kids at school, going out for rides on the weekend, running every other day and drinking a few cold beers every other night. Do you think you'll keep the podcast going? Life outside the peloton. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I don't know if it will have the same impact. Don't know. Yeah, like if I'm living back in Australia, it could be quite difficult. And I think you lose touch pretty quick of the peloton. Um, maybe there could be a, another podcast that, like, because I definitely enjoy doing it, the process of it, um, but maybe it won't be the same um, format. Not too sure. And what sort of store would you have? I reckon I would have a food store slash like a place where you can come in and get like a little coffee in the morning, a little coffee and a croissant or a little, you know, brioche. And then in the afternoon, like a place where you can 
get a beer poured and you can get like a little tapas there, but you can also pick up a bit of fresh produce or things that I've um, picked up from living around the world. That sounds nice. <laughs> Do you have a favourite race that you've done? Roubaix. <laughs> Is there a race that you haven't done yet that you would really like to do? I wouldn't mind doing um, Trobro. Um, it's called Trobro Lyon, I think. Um, it's um, in France. It's a dirt, it's on dirt roads, but dirt and normal roads. It's a pretty cool race. Um, we're actually down for it this year. I wouldn't mind doing that this year. Um, or there is another race called Ron Van Het Hergeland which is a race that it combines dirt and cobbles and it's around um, in Belgium. It's a really cool race too. Hard, both very hard races, but I just like the, the feeling of segments, you know, you like Roubaix, you race on the segment and then everyone's like off. All right. How many guys left? Okay, let's go next segment, you know? So I think those would be two cool races to do. Do you like riding off road? I do, yeah, I do. Getting more into it, yeah. Like, um, you know, this year has been, well, the last few years been doing a lot of training on uh, the gravel bike, but um, maybe this year I can do some stuff with, with Lockie Morton also on the alternate program. So still pushing the limits there. Um, where is your favourite place to ride for fun? Hmm. Probably, probably Girona. You know, like, I am very sick of it sometimes, but it's a pretty good place to ride. There's not, there's not much you can't do there. Every, you can do everything. Coasts, climbs, big climbs, small climbs, flat. You can do it all. It's a pretty bloody good place to ride. Do you prefer to ride alone or with other people? I would say in general alone. But I, not to say that I don't like riding with people, but sometimes I just want to get it done. And um, this time of year, I really like riding with people because you're just sort of riding. But once the season gets going, um, yeah. I'm normally early with the kids. So it's like, let's just get, get going, get out on the road, chuck the headphones in, listen to some music, listen to a podcast and yeah, take it in. It's nice. What about indoor training? Do you like that? I don't really. Um, I did get used to it and didn't mind it during lockdown. Mm. And I really started to understand how useful Zwift could be. If you had your bike set up in Zwift all the time and I really had a great routine, you just put your kit on in the morning, walk down, do your, do your one hour, one and a half hours, workout and you're done for the day it was really really handy really um easy but if i could choose i would try and always go outside who is your favorite current rider mike woods woodsy he's just uh the thing i love about woodsy is he's a great guy absolutely really really great guy um and he just, he knows how to hurt himself. He works so hard and um, he works so hard on the bike, he tries to tick every bike box off the bike. And then when he's racing, he really 
you can see it when he's going for the win. He leaves no stone unturned, and he's crossed the right line completely spent. And I love that about him. It's 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 inspiring. You think to yourself, maybe I did have more. Maybe I did have more. Who's your favourite rider of all time? Um, probably Jan Ulrich. Um, he was the guy I used to watch trying to beat Lance Armstrong in the tour. And I just loved everything about him when I was growing up. I loved his style. I loved how he was just didn't speak and he just was so powerful. And 2003 Tour de France, when he came back at Lance, when he was in Team Bianchi, it was just, that was the pinnacle. So he was, he's my favourite of all time. What's your advice for young riders? Um, don't get too caught up in, in the numbers of things, you know, like, like I said at the start, get out there and just ride, do whatever you race, race, race bunchies, do bunch rides, race them, do racing, race that. And at the end of all that, if you still love it, then get more involved. And if you don't just enjoy it, you know, and it's very easy to say, just enjoy it, but yeah, just don't worry about the rest because there's a lot more time to worry about the numbers once you uh, start to race a bit more seriously. You've got five minutes before you head down to the start of a race. What's on your playlist to get you motivated? Um, okay, I don't normally listen to music to go down to the start of a race because generally a race is not full gas from the start. There's mm-hmm. like a neutral zone and... You know, by the time the race starts, it's like half hour after you left the, the bus. So you leave the bus too pumped up. But if it's a time trial, you know you're sort of a few minutes away and then you're into it. Um, I like listening to Daft Punk. Daft Punk, um, they've got a uh, live album and um, the last few tracks of that, I really like those tracks. It's... Um, they're sort of my go-to if I if I need some real inspiration, deep down mm. efforts, uh, some inspiration. It's time to pull out Daft Punk. Thank you for joining me today, Mitch. No worries. Thanks for having me. I hope you all enjoyed listening to this episode just as much as I enjoyed recording it. If you liked this episode or any of my other episodes, then please share with your friends. And as always, I'd love to hear your feedback. See you on the bike.